0: 6:18 through 21. But will God really dwell on earth with me, with men? The heavens or heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built! Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord, my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in the presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer, your servant prayers towards this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people. Israel, when they pray, toward the place here from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive it.
1: Go ahead and be seated. What Landon just read was some of the words of Solomon when the temple was dedicated. And we're going to come back to that here in just a bit. But there was, uh, uh, I wanted to share uh, something with you that, that I got to hear and experience here this last week. And, and um, there was, uh, here a couple of weeks ago, Dan. Morgan stepped aside after serving as an elder here for for many years, and and there's a few people shared thoughts. and I thought the last thing the church wants to hear is the minister to get up and to share more. and So I'm not going to get up and, and share anymore at this point in time. But one thing that I I, I remember something that I, I saw Dan do once that I appreciated very much. It I had, hadn't been here very long, and uh, been four years um, now that that my family and I have have moved here to be a part of the church and to work alongside you but we were i was in my the office that I use and and uh Dan came in and it was in a weekday and we were talking and and he was about to get up and leave and and uh, I just said, "Hey, let's pray before you take off." And Dan said, "That sounds good." And so Dan started and then I prayed afterwards. But I remember what he prayed for. I don't remember specifics, but he listed off about a dozen different families in the church and prayed for their spiritual well-being and the struggles that they were walking through at the time. And that impacted me a lot because I thought, boy, that's if Dan can sit down and just pray for the great number of people and their spiritual well-being so quickly like that. That's a great example for me, and I think it's a it's a great example for all of us to be people that that look out for the spiritual needs of others and that we're constantly praying for each other. And uh, that's something that I, I think we can we can sure do as a people. And uh, there was, I know all of us were blessed to um, to have Everett Hufford speak to us last week. He spent a lot of time with with Mark Morgan and uh, Carl Spiegel our elders and one of the things that he said as he was leaving, they had lunch with us on on, uh, on Sunday afternoon, he and his wife, he just said, Chris, I just love to come and visit with the Belgrade Church because I see so much good that is happening, and I believe that God has positioned you guys just to launch in the future to do great things, and please share that with the church here because I see so much good. I travel around, I participate in churches all over the place, and I always love to come back here because I see so much good that is happening. And so I wanted you guys to hear that same thing that I heard. Uh, future's bright, and I'm excited to see where God leads day in day out with all of our lives, and uh, and how He continues to work among us. Okay, we're going to go back to the book of Luke. Go ahead and turn to chapter 19. Now there is in your each of you should be uh, with the bulletin you got this morning a handout uh, with a picture of the temple on it. Um, did you guys get those? If not, we'll have them handed out. Did you, did you get them? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, you got them. Okay. One of you has a color copy. And so whoever has the color copy, see me afterwards for a prize, okay? That's just my fun thing to do anyway there. We have one, one color copy in there. So who's got it? Is anybody going to fess up to it right now? Who, who's got it? Oh, Kelton. Kelton's got the color copy. Kelton kept it for himself. (laughs) He was passing him out, and he kept the color copy for himself. So there's got to be a parable in this, and so I'll think of what it is, and we'll talk about it later. But yeah, well played, Kelton. Okay, we'll talk afterwards. So Luke, from, from chapter 9 to chapter 19, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's teaching along the way. So we have ten chapters there that Jesus is continued going to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is the center of everything that happens within the Jewish nation. The temple is there, and we'll talk about the temple here in just a minute. But it is, when, when you went to Jerusalem, what was supposed to happen? is it was supposed to be like going to the Super Bowl, something like that. Okay, there's, there's exceptions. But this is an exciting time. We get to go to worship God, and we get to go and participate there. And the king that the prophets talked about for hundreds of years before was supposed to come to Jerusalem, was supposed to establish his kingdom there, and great things were going to happen as, as God's kingdom there. Of course, we've talked about a lot. They anticipated a physical kingdom with armies and, and all that sort of thing. But Jesus anticipated something very different, and what he, planned something, what he planned was something very different. And so we're going to start in, and I'm going to read a chunk today, and we're going to look at chapter 19, and then uh, in chapter 1, I think I put 22 up there, uh, but we're going to read in chapter, chapter 21, 19 and 21. And we're going to skip some sections of some interactions that he has in the temple grounds. But I want you to be able to, to see the temple today, and, and what is in the context of what's going to happen here. Okay, if you want to, you can look at the back because there's some technical difficulties. This projector is out. I'm sure I will find out afterwards that it is my fault somehow. Delbert will tell me, Chris, you can't do whatever it is and and something happened. Not this time, Delbert. Oh, man, there you have witnesses. For once, it was not me messing up the the technology somewhere here. Okay, if you want to, you can look at the back. This is a model of the temple grounds of Jesus' day. And that's what it looked like. There's the temple there in the center, and then there's the temple grounds around. And it's built up like a giant fortress. You see how far it is off the ground of everything below it. When you look at, you can look back here again. This is the temple itself, or a, a replica of it. And then this is, this will be the last time for a bit. But that's a, a replica of the temple there. And so when you, you pull out what you, you have there in your hand out of the temple... Uh, I'll talk through some of what the the temple was. Now, Israel didn't always have a temple. Originally, they had, before the temple, they had a what? A tabernacle or a tent, yeah. Because when the Israelites came out of Egypt, God gave them instructions to build this tabernacle, and it was to be mobile, and so as they wandered around, they would set it up. And they would worship God in and around that tabernacle. And it was set up very similar to what the temples would be later. There's a big outer area. And then there's an area that's, that's more central where there's a holy place where the priests would go and burn incense daily. And then there's the most holy place that the high priest would enter once a year on the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now... Originally, the Ark of the Covenant was in that that area of the Most Holies, and there were some articles that were in there, and it was a, it was a, something that was a very powerful presence. It was something that uh, the Israelites held in high honor. In fact, if you touched it, you would die, and that happened. We see examples of that uh, in in the Old Testament. And so what happens is, once um, the tabernacle is, is set up and it's, it's put away different times, and throughout the times of the judges for several hundred years. And it comes to the reign of King David. And David says, boy, I just think that we should have a permanent place where people can come from all over the world to be able to serve God and worship God and learn about God. Let's build a temple. And he prayed about it, and there, there was a lot of, of, uh, of, of prayer and discussion about it. And God responds and reveals himself to David and says, David, you can build this temple, but you may not you may not build it yourself because you have blood on your hands and so your son is going to be the one that's going to build this temple. And so Solomon, his son, builds a temple and what uh, was read here just a minute ago by Landon was part of that is, is when the temple was built and dedicated called Solomon's Temple, it was, uh, it was this beautiful place that people could come and, and learn about God and sacrifices would happen, and that was the plan for all of it. It looked really very similar to this temple here, but we'll, we'll get back to that without all the, the, the stuff that's built up around it. And Solomon's temple was there for, for quite a while, from about 950 to 586. And 586, the Babylonians came down and they destroyed the temple, took all the articles out, and left. And a few years later... Some of the the slaves that that leave come back and and they build another temple. Temple, meaning Zerubbabel, okay, I got ahead of myself, was one of the the men that came back and helped build that. Uh, The preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, they encouraged the building of this temple. And that second temple, and it's called historically the second temple if you do reading, if you come across something, you say, What's the second temple? It's that temple. That is built there. And the men that are old that come back that saw Solomon's temple weep because it was not near as ornate or as beautiful as the temple before. And the young men who had never seen Solomon's temple were ecstatic because they're excited about this new temple that is built that they can worship. And so for centuries, that temple is there in Jerusalem, and, and periodically, whether it be with Solomon's temple or it be with this, this temple, there's, there's idols that are brought in, there's, there's, there's times that are good, there's times that are bad, there's times that the temples need to be re- purified in that. And so shortly before the birth of Jesus, this temple has gone into disarray. The Romans uh, beforehand, about 60 years or so before Jesus is born, they come in and they just take everything out of it. And and there's not much left of it, and it's and it there's sacrifices happening there, but it's run down, and and there's not much to it. And so what happens is Herod the Great. This is the Herod that is reigning when Jesus is born. Terrible guy. Uh, He's the one that that executes all the babies because he wants to try to kill Jesus. But one of the things that Herod the Great did is that he was a builder, and he wanted and there's all sorts of motives. Part of it because he wanted to be remembered in history as building amazing, beautiful things. And so he financed a temple, or the remodel of this, this temple. Sometimes it's called the remodel of the second temple, sometimes it's called the third temple. And what happens is Herod and his, his people, he organized his people to come in and rebuild this temple. And what they did was amazing. They used white marble all around the outside and gold to build this temple to be amazing and beautiful to be a place where people would come all over the world and say wow that is amazing. And Herod he, he what, his life did not reflect that he cared about God at all. But what we see is that he cared that this temple would be amazing and beautiful. So if you look at that handout you have there, look at the bottom. You have the uh, dimensions of a football field beside the temple grounds there. So that should give you an idea of how big this place is. This temple is is massive. And when you there's, there's several areas of the temple as you get closer, they become more and more exclusive and so you go up the stairs and you come into this uh, this great temple area, all of that big open space that you see around the temple area, that was what was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was an area that was not purified, so Gentiles could come in and they could be near the temple, they could look at it, they could see it from a distance, and, and that 's what, what it was supposed to be. So we're going to see that, that there's a lot of things that happen in the court of the Gentiles. In, in the Gospels, here in the next weeks, so we're going to go through the last week of Jesus' life. And in Acts, there's a whole lot of things. When they talk about being at the temple grounds or people being there to be healed, that's oftentimes where it is. It's in this area right around the temple. Okay, if you look at, if you get closer, you see there's the temple itself, or the temple grounds that, where the temple the proper is at, are lifted up again. Another twenty some odd feet higher than than the court of the Gentiles around. So you're looking at a temple that is sitting up really high. On the front of that is the gate called Beautiful. Remember, there's people that are healed there because they would wait there and wait to be to be healed or to be to be given given money. And if you go in that first area, and this is listed on the, the handout that you have there, there's the court of women. So the Jewish women were able to enter in to an area that was that was not right up next to the temple, but it was closer. And beyond that, the Jewish men were able to enter and to stand around an area where the, the sacrifices happened. And the priests themselves, every day, whoever was, was, uh, was there that was offering incense, Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, there's a, a description of that in the first chapters of Luke. He is the priest that's on duty that day. And he goes up and he offers incense and he comes out. But within the temple itself, there's no lights. The, everything that is, can be seen is there because there's candles that are in there that allow the priest to be able to see. And during this time, the, the best records that we have say that the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would enter once a year, there's nothing in there. It is gone. And we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. Some may say that it was where? In a government warehouse because Indiana Jones took it and hid it, right? Okay. But we don't know where it's at. It's gone, probably destroyed But it's gone. At this point in time, it's just an empty room. And so here is these these temple grounds. And this is a place where people would come from all over the world to be able to worship God, to be able to learn what God was about, and to try to understand him. And as Jesus is coming down into Jerusalem, just put yourself in his shoes. He is looking at this temple, and he's able to see it and think, wow, what an amazing structure this is. And we're going to start in uh, Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to read a section here. In verse 28, it says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Then say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. Now, Bethany and Bethpage are are Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And so what happens here is Jesus is going into Jerusalem as a king. Now, this is, if we stop and and take a time out and look at this, you look at the Roman processionals when the Romans would come in uh, after they had been in battle. They would come in and they would, they would be slaves that, that were taken. There was uh, soldiers that would be carrying, or, or servants that would be carrying all sorts of loot that was, that was taken from the campaigns that they had been on. And there would be the emperor or the generals or whoever they would be would be coming in on horses dressed in armor and ready to, uh, to bring glory to themselves. And Jesus goes into Jerusalem in a very different way. He goes in on a donkey, which is a pretty humble animal. And he goes in, dressed like anybody else, and people come and say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because they know he's the guy that's been teaching. He's the guy that's been doing miracles, and they are excited for him to come as a king into Jerusalem. So there's some people at this point in time are excited about the possibilities that this Jesus may be a king. And something he says here, and we don't know how many people hear this at this point in time, but we would think that, hey, this is a great time. Look at all of this that is happening. Look at what Jesus is. He's being honored. There's going to be a happy ending here. But look at verse 41. He says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known on that day, on this day, what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And Jesus, you can imagine the heartbreak that's here when he laments her destruction and her sinfulness. Because Jerusalem, even though it was supposed to be an example of what God was all about, he knows better and he knows what's happening there. And he continues on, and John chapter 2 gives more details about this particular situation. It says, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. As it is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. And so if you look at the handout I gave you, over on the court of the Gentiles to the left side, There's some staircases there that come in up into the court of the Gentiles. Just imagine if you are a Gentile that has come to see what the the temple is all about or you're someone who is Jewish that has traveled from a long distance and you come up those stairs and the first thing you see as you come up those stairs are people saying, hey, buy this, hey, buy this. Here's a lamb that you need. Oh, that lamb's no good. Buy this one, buy this one. And you get the hard sell as soon as you come up those stairs to see what God is about. Now, there's a few times in history that the Jews would tell you at this time that there were some terrible things that happened that defiled the temple. About 160 years before Jesus was born, a Syrian ruler, one of the descendants of the kingdoms of Alexander the Great, named Antiochus Epiphanes, what he does is he forces the high priest to sacrifice a pig on the altar in the temple. And it disgusted the Jews and actually started a revolt and started a war. But the Jews took that altar, destroyed it, cleaned everything, and got it out of there because it was so disgusting to them because pigs were unclean animals and they were not supposed to be anywhere near the temple. And a terrible, terrible situation. And, and if you were sitting around at the city gate with, with uh, some Jewish people from that time, And that name came up. They would shake their heads in disgust at how the temple was defiled. Or Herod the Great himself, he he took, going into the temple, into the gate there... He took an, an image of a big eagle, which was the representation of, of Rome, and put it right there so the Jews had to walk under it as they went in. And they hated it. They hated it because eagles are unclean animals. So we don't think of them as we do now. The beautiful animal, isn't that pretty? It was this unclean animal that they had to walk under as they went into the temple. And it disgusted them. And after Herod the Great died, the Jews took it down and destroyed it. Uh, they didn't feel like they could get away with it while he was alive, but they did it right afterwards. That was something that defiled the temple. They hated it. There was a time where some Samaritans uh, during this time period snuck a dead body into the temple. I don't know how on earth they did it, but they snuck a dead body in the temple and left it there so the temple would be defiled. You know, the nasty religious practical joke that people played during that time. Now the Romans, if you look at um, the temple grounds there on the top right, there's the... Antonia Fortress, that's where the Romans would sit up there and watch what was happening down in the temple grounds because they would come down with their soldiers and they would, if there was ever a riot or there was something happening, they would come down and they would they would take care of it. But it's interesting here that of all those things that defiled the temple that made the Jews disgusted, what Jesus is upset about is that when people walk into the temple grounds, what they see is not people sharing the message of God, but people trying to make money. And this would not have been lost on people who were reading Luke who were Jewish. They would have understood, wait a minute here, Jesus is, is purifying the temple here. He is doing something. We, we think all these things that have happened before in the temple are disgusting and they're bad and all that. But this is the thing that Jesus gets upset about, is providing a terrible example for people that come in to try to worship God. He's upset about that, and he purifies that temple If you skip to chapter 21, there's uh, some interactions that Jesus has on those temple grounds. It would have been in the court of Gentiles primarily as he's he's interacting and talking with people. And I'm going to read a section here, starting in verse 5, as he is leaving the temple grounds there within the next few days. It says, Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. And this place, Herod's temple, was a place to see Something amazing and beautiful. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first but the end will not come right away. So they ask him, wait a minute, when is this temple going to be destroyed? Jesus, you need to talk to us about this because this sounds like a big deal here. Jesus says, there's going to be all sorts of, of, uh, of heartaches. Nations are going to rise against nation. But it's not going to come yet. Verse 10, he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. In the years after Jesus is executed, raised and taken up to heaven, there's a lot of turmoil in the Roman world, and there's wars that are happening, there's fear, there's, there's famines, there's all these things that are happening. Verse 12, it says, Before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. Notice Jesus is saying, you're going to have to go and you're going to have to share why you follow me. Don't worry about it. I'll help you you answer. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies you will know that its desolation is near. And that's what happens. There's the Roman armies start surrounding Jerusalem. Then those who are in Judea, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. And so Jesus doesn't say, when you see the armies surrounding your home, stay and fight. He says, get out. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. You can sense the anguish that Jesus is sharing here. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time you will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Okay, some of this may speak about the second coming of Jesus. Some of it may be um, be figurative. But listen to 29. 29. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will come. And close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live in the face of the whole earth. Always be on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. And then Jesus says this, each day he comes and goes from the temple grounds. And so Jesus shares a few things there that are important. He says, there's going to be a time that that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and this temple is going to be destroyed. And I imagine, do you imagine how hard it was on all of us that were alive at the time when the Twin Towers went down? I remember where I was, and I remember watching the footage, live footage of those planes hitting those towers and those towers falling to the ground, and me thinking, how on earth could something so big and amazing be taken down like that? Well, the temple had been standing for much, much longer than the Twin Towers had. And Jesus says, here's what you need to know. You need to understand that there's going to be persecution that's going to come on you. But just push through. Because God is working in all this. And second, is that there's going to be great destruction that comes on Jerusalem. Don't stay. Get out and run. That's what I'm telling you to do. God has done that before. Before Jerusalem was destroyed, before by the Babylonians, the prophets came and said, get out. Don't fight. Don't do it. When they chose to fight, there was great, great personal loss that came because of that. But if you know, if you know your history, I'll tell you what happens. About 40, 40 years after Jesus is, is executed, raised, and goes to be in heaven, the zealots who become more and more prominent, and one of them apparently was Jesus' disciple, and he takes a different path after he comes and follows Jesus, but the Zealots are, are, are a group of people that fight among themselves, but what they have in common is they hate Rome, and they start a war with Rome. And finally, the general Titus comes and surrounds Rome. And if you read the historian Josephus, he describes this in detail, and it's worth a read. Because what happens is the Romans come in, and the Jews fought so violently, that the Romans just continue to, to move in and the Romans are returning the favor. And it's this violent, nasty battle that is happening. Now, if you want to look to the back, there's a picture of a drawing that, it, that is uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. You can see how ugly that is. that's happening there. And what happens is the, the, Roman imp- the Romans are able to come around and they have the fortress of Antonia and they come around outside the court of the Gentiles. And what happens is Titus with his battle-hardened Roman soldiers, he is waiting it out because there's some Jews that have holed up in the temple. And he doesn't want to destroy the temple. And he has them wait. And he says, we're going to, we're going to get them out of there. We're going to save this, this amazing architectural structure. We don't want to destroy it. Just wait them out. And what happens is, because the battle is so violent and so terrible, one of the Roman soldiers gets loose and runs up across the court of the Gentiles up to the temple and throws a torch into the temple. And Titus, the commander, loses control of his troops and they set the temple on fire and the Roman legionaries go in and just start slaughtering the Jews that are in there. Titus sees what's happening and says, well, This temple is probably going to be destroyed, but I'm going to go in and I'm going to see what's in there before it does. And Titus and and some of his centurions enter into the temple and they look around and they see how beautiful it is and amazing and realize that if they don't get out, they're going to get burned with it. And they get out and the slaughter continues to happen. And Titus, as I said, just loses control of his troops. They destroy the temple and they just start destroying the rest of Jerusalem at the time. And if you look again behind you, there's a few more things you can look at. This is the Arch of Titus. When Titus returned to Jerusalem, this is what he he had created in his honor. And uh, the last time I saw the Arch of Titus, usually there's a there's actually there's a, uh, ropes around it, so you can't get right underneath it. You have to stand on the side. But there's a huge rainstorm came in, so everybody jumped. Everybody jumped under the Arch of Titus anyway. Jumped over the ropes to try the rain. But it's right up the hill from the Colosseum. But this is on the inside. Jewish slaves engraved all of this on the inside. And there's some. What, what this is, is the Roman soldiers carrying off the articles of the temple. You can see the candle there. How many of you have seen this in person? Okay, it's, it's powerful to see the Arch of Titus in person, knowing that the Jews who saw this happen are the ones that, that, um, that carved all of that there. And this is a picture of what's left of the temple grounds. That wall there on the, the right side there, that's called the western wall of the wailing wall. That's part of the outside of the temple grounds that is left there. And the, the lower stones are the ones that are that are original. The ones that are up higher are, uh, were made later or, or put in place later. And you see that big dome there? That is called the Dome of the Rock. Uh, that is a Muslim mosque that during the times of the Crusades where the Jewish temple once stood, where the rock was, where the... Uh, altar was placed where the, uh, the priests would offer the burnt offerings. The Muslims came in and put a mosque on top of it and declared it a holy site for them. And so you look at this. I imagine the people of Jesus' day, if they would have known how all this is going to shake out, would have asked the question, is God's kingdom going to be destroyed? Why would God allow something like this to happen? But if you've been listening to Jesus through the book of Luke, Jesus has been talking about his kingdom a lot. In fact, he talks about his kingdom using that word specifically, not counting the other times that he talks about his kingdom without using the word, over 40 times, so on average just less than than twice per chapter that Jesus has brought this up. He's been talking about it a lot, what his kingdom is. And if you look at, at what his kingdom is about, he talks about, there is, and here's, um, if you want to take a picture of the back, I'll put this, uh, this up there and you can look up these scriptures later. But this is what he says about his kingdom, just a little bit. He says, it's eternal, it's hidden from our sight, we can't see it, but it is coming soon and it seems small, but it will grow to have a huge impact. It's like a mustard seed. It doesn't look like much, but you just wait. It's going to have this tremendous and an amazing impact. It has unexpected citizenship and borders. It's not the people that you expect that are part of God's kingdom. And it belongs to those who submit themselves to God. He talks, says this in the context of the little children coming to Jesus. Those that really depend on God are the ones that are going to be part of this kingdom. And her people are going to be people who produce good fruit. And he's not done talking about his kingdom. But Jesus... It's very clear he's bringing in a kingdom that is very different than what people expect, and so the question is: Is Jesus's, is God's kingdom going to be destroyed? Because boy, they thought that when Jesus talked about this destruction of the temple. How could Jesus, or how could God, do something like that? The physical of king, the physical kingdom, the Jewish kingdom, was destroyed as we know it within forty years after Jesus being on this earth. And even historians, even Jewish historians say, we absolutely deserved it, as evil as we became, and as terrible as we treated others. But God's spiritual kingdom was just preparing to grow and expand. A little over months, little less than two months later, after Jesus says these things on the temple grounds, what's going to happen is people are there for Pentecost, and that's the happy festival. That's the one the Romans liked, because the Jews revolted a lot less at Pentecost than they did at, at Passover. And as the court of the Gentiles fills up and there's, there's Jews that are going in to, to worship and that, something happens. There's a tax collector. There's some fishermen. There's a zealot. There's some of these people that have been following Jesus around, gather around, and start speaking. And the Holy Spirit empowers them to be able to speak the message of Jesus. And they speak about this kingdom that Jesus brought that is going to be greater than anything you can touch. And what happens in the next years is you see the people dedicate themselves to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the people that become followers of Jesus... Followers of his kingdom start to tell others about it, and the message expands and expands and expands, and it continues to to go out into the world. And when you look forward decades, there's people that are Gentiles that are becoming part of this kingdom. In fact, Jesus' followers talk about the temple, but they talk about it in a different way. They talk about the temple being Jesus's body. They talk about the temple being his people, and they talk about the temple with us and what we what we do with ourselves, our our own physical bodies, being a temple of God. And when you get to the end of Scripture, in Revelation 21, when John is able to see into the future fulfillment of the kingdom of God, he looks around and he says, there is no temple here because God is the temple himself. And that was God's plan all the way along. And so did God's kingdom get destroyed? The answer is no. But there's a very powerful lesson in this. The Jews of Jesus' day ended up misunderstanding what God's kingdom was all about. They didn't understand it was a kingdom of people and a kingdom of peace. They saw it was a kingdom of buildings and a kingdom of of structures and a kingdom of of power that they grabbed for themselves. I think there's a great message in this is that any one of us can create a kingdom of things that are not the kingdom of God. And one great lesson that the people of Jesus' day learned is that the more we learn about God, the more we understand Jesus and his message, the more that aligns us to be the people in the kingdom that Jesus wants us to be. If you'd like to become part of the kingdom of Jesus today, you're welcome. We can do that. Uh, You're welcome to approach God in faith, repentance, and baptism. And if you just need some prayers during this time in your life, you're welcome to head to the back, and the elders are back there waiting for you to pray with you. Let's stand and sing together.